Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special episode of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they worked or they lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the search for justice after a teenager was wrongfully convicted of the sexual assault and murder of his high school classmate. Even though pre-trial DNA evidence excluded him from the crime scene, the jury convicted on the strength of his own false confession, which was coerced by police without his mother or an attorney present. Our guests today are proof of how the human spirit and the truth will ultimately prevail. With us is Jeffrey Deskovic, who has spent 16 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit, and Gia Wirtz, a writer, filmmaker, and a co-host of the Speaking of Crime podcast. Gia's documentary, Conviction, is about Jeffrey's exoneration. Welcome, you two. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. It is just such an honor. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Anna. (laughs) You, You know, Jeffrey, the thing about your case is you were 17 when you went to prison, and when you came out, you were a 33 year old man, and so much had changed in the world, so much had happened to you. And I always think of the sadness of when someone speaks truth and no one believes them. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, when you're, you know, when you're in prison uh, wrongfully, you know, it's very hard to get anybody to hear you. I mean, there's always a ton of media coverage once an exoneration happens. But of course, the critical time period to receive that is while the injustice is still afoot. Was there anyone in your life, Jeff, who did believe you? Well, I mean, my my mother believed me, my extended family believed me. It's just that that belief didn't translate into them staying in regular touch with me, helping me out morale wise or certainly trying to, you know, uh, help me when I, as I fought to be exonerated. I mean, there were several times when 
my mother made rounds to the extended family and asked everybody to contribute a manageable amount of funds so that, you know, we could hire the necessary legal services that I needed to prove my innocence. And, you know, people all declined to do that. Mm. Gia, what was it about Jeff's story that that you felt needed to be told yet one more time in a different way? Because Jeffrey has been very outspoken ever since he did get out of prison and, and we will and very sharing such vulnerable things. What was it that you felt needed to be told yet in another way? You know, um, for one, there's just something about wrongful convictions, about the world believing that you did something so horrific that you're not capable of. That really just shakes me at my core. And um, I hadn't heard of Jeffrey's story, actually. I'm Canadian originally, and I live in New York now. And I heard the serial podcast, like half the world, mm-hmm. and was incensed by what happened to Adnan and thought, you know, here's an innocent kid still sitting in prison who went in at 17 and never came back out. And um, I organized a fundraiser for Adnan here in New York. It was one of the first in-person fundraisers to raise money for his legal defense fund. And in the process of organizing that fundraiser, a friend of mine who was organizing it with me said, I know a guy who has a very similar story to Adnan and you should meet him. And I, we were looking for a speaker for the event at the time. And so I said, absolutely, um, you know, introduce me. And she introduced me to Jeff. And that was the first time I heard of Jeff's story. And then when he started telling me the story, it was uncanny how much I was very familiar with a non-story and I wasn't familiar with Jeff's at the time. And then he started talking and then he said that he was 16 and he was in high school, a girl that he knew an acquaintance in school was murdered and the police got tunnel vision or, you know, best case scenario, they got tunnel vision and they, you know, blamed him for the crime. Uh, and that's, and that's where I learned of his story. And I was, you know, I was an honor to meet him in, you know, in person because of everything he's been through and the person that he is. The, I can't even speak to the perseverance and the human spirit that like people like Jeff have. It's really, really remarkable. And so that's what really interested me in his case was just getting to know his story and my already previous interest in a non-story and it being so similar. So we're going to play now a clip for everyone. For those of you who are listening and watching, this is Conviction, the documentary that Gia produced. I would hope that they would look at me as being just as innocent as they are. I mean, I'm the same as them, except that I was arrested for something that I didn't do, and they were not. At the time of the crime, she was 15. Um, I was 16. These two men got out of a car. They had on uh, long trench coats, and uh, they called my name, pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They got a psychological profile from the NYPD, and I happened to fit that psychological profile. The police spoke to a lot of students in the, in the high school, and some of them told the police they might want to talk to me because I was quiet and to myself, and I didn't really fit in there charged with uh, murder and rape. Yo, man, you, you cost me 16 years of my life. There's so much that is wrong about this case. So much. You know, I, I think of a, of a young man, of a 16-year-old, who basically is being interrogated by police without his mother present, without an adult present, without an attorney present, to coerce this confession, which was the basis of of the conviction 
here in this case. And and I I, I want to go back and, and piece together the crime and how this all happened, Jeffrey and Gia. But one thing that sticks out that I am grateful for is that the district attorney who finally, finally, you know, freed you and believed you based on the evidence wrote this lengthy report detailing the atrocities that were committed by the criminal justice system, including the police officers, including how the prosecutors handled it. And I, as I was reading that, I found it so helpful to, I I think sometimes with exoneration cases, there's always in the back of the head, someone is saying, oh, well, what if, what if he or she really did it? And this report, I think Jeffrey was so helpful to read the narrative of what they did to you. Yeah, it was a really good report that the district attorney had commissioned four independent experts to study and write. And, you know, it, it explained all the various junctures at which the, you know, the justice system broke down from the arrest to the conviction and to the appeals. Yeah, it was very, very helpful. And um, I think we're going to try and link to that for anyone who wants to read it, because it, it just it gives you that independent perspective. It isn't just you, Jeffrey, telling your story, which is entirely yours, but it's the criminal justice system saying this is how we failed at each step. And it's horrific what you were put through. Horrific. So let's go back. Let's go. Let's go back to the murder. So it was November 15th, 1989. And Angela Correa, who was a 15 year old student at Peekskill High School in New York, up in Westchester, went out in the afternoon to a wooded area uh, to take some photographs for a photography class. I was just so taken back by the details of the fact that she had a, a cassette Walkman. You know, it really puts you back in that decade and, and that time. Um, she disappeared, and then two days later, her body was discovered on November 17th. She had been beaten. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. So, Jeffrey, you you knew her at school. One of the things I read, G.I., found this so troubling, was that because Jeffrey, as a young man, was emotional at um, the wakes or the funerals in, in memory of this young woman who was murdered, that that somehow started pointing um, attention toward him. What sense does that make? I know. I always I always say this when I talk about that. It's so sad and just so heartbreaking that if you think about it, Jeff was hysterical and crying. And to me, that indicates that he was the most sensitive person in the room or somebody that's really soft hearted. And for that person to be put through this ordeal and go to a max security men's prison, I mean, he was a he was 17, he was a child at the time. It makes it just even more horrific. So how did they started zeroing in on you, Jeffrey? There was there was that that some people found suspicious, the fact that for heaven's well, sakes, you're emotional. Well, I mean, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police they might want to speak with me. That was the first thing. And then uh, just being emotional, being a sensitive teenager, and then also getting the psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator, with my unfortunately having matched that. Which, of course, when they found the true killer, could not have been more off base. Correct. Complete opposite of what they were really should have been looking for. 
Unbelievable. So, um, Jeffrey, can you share with us how this snowballed? Because obviously it starts with some of the kids pointing to you and then you genuinely trying to help because you care about human life and your, you know, your classmate who has been murdered. How did this snowball? How did the police manipulate you? Well, firstly, the um, well, the, the, in the in the interrogation dynamic overall, I mean, there was a six weeks run up to the coerced false confession, and the conversations always had the dynamic that half the time they would speak to me like I was a suspect, and then when they would push too hard and I'd get frightened and I'd want to get away from them, then they switched it up, and then Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was developed by them. You know, they would say, well, the kids won't talk freely around us. They will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Uh, stop in from time to time. So they had me confused as of the fact that I was even a suspect. So that was um, that was part of it. Um, they did the good cop, bad cop technique. So I began to look at the father, the officer who was pretending to be my friend as, as a father figure. So those were those were two of that, that was two of it. And eventually the way that they got me to agree to take the polygraph, they said, we have some new information in the file. We want to share that with you and that'll allow you to be more helpful to us. So that was how they got me to agree to take the polygraph. Um, then they drove then they drove me you know, out of county on a school day the, the next day. Uh, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school. So they drove me to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So it was across county lines, about 40 minutes away by car. The polygraphist was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator. Um, Daniel Stevens was his name. And he was dressed like a civilian. He pretended like he was not a police officer. I didn't understand all the big words in this four page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But then I thought because I was there to help the police that it really didn't matter. And they put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee. And then from there, um, he launched into his third degree tactics and, you know, he invaded my personal space. He um, raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. Then he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours, uh, eventually telling me, you just told me through the test that, uh, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And then the cop coming in the room who was pretending to be my friend. And, you know, he told me, look, the other officers are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I can't do that any longer. You have to help yourself. Just tell them what they want to hear. You go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in the moment. And I uh, took the out which he offered and made up a story based on the information that he had given me in the course of the interrogation. And by the time it was all said and done, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Who wouldn't? And plus, you're a young person, you know, a 16-year-old. Uh, Gia, I, I hear this, and, you know, it to a degree, it sounds unbelievable. And then, sadly, it does seem to fit a pattern that we've seen with this level of abuse within law enforcement. One of the things that was pointed out in the independent report was that the interrogation was intermittently recorded and the key parts of what was really being said and done to Jeff were not recorded. How how important do you think this was 
to to you know the trajectory of where this case would go well you know and I'll, i'm sure jeff has a lot to say about this for one it, it just proves that it was intentional obviously you know what the detectives were doing was very intentional and Jeff being 16 was no match for these seasoned detectives, which is so sad. It's adults. Um, and, but I will add a little color to that and tell you that, you know, fast forward to today in the last couple of years when I did freedom of information requests to retrieve those recordings and retrieve the police reports for the documentary. Um, he, you know, Jeff mentioned that he was interrogated for seven, almost seven hours. And when they gave me the documents, huge, not only the paper documents, lots of redacted, but in the audio files, they gave me about an hour. And in that hour, I mean, there, there's things redacted within the hour, and then I'm missing the other six and a half, whatever, six hours. And when I questioned them on it, they said, well, we had to redact everything that includes victim's name, victim's address, other witnesses' addresses. And I was like, that's not, that doesn't amount to six hours. But, you know, in a way, their behaviors continue because they, they want to hide, you know, their own, you know, misdeeds. And therefore, they don't give you everything, even though the law is that we should be able to obtain those. Yeah, these record the recordings were the intermittent recordings during the six weeks run up to the day of the confession, where they, you know, were surreptitiously starting and stopping the tapes, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think that the times where they stopped in the tapes, they were engaging in their tactics. Of course. So you're saying that on the day of the confession, they didn't record it at all. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Wow, that's even worse than imagined. Right. And as a result of that lack of recording, I mean, they when they came in the court to testify, they left that out of their story. Uh, another part of this, Gia, is the defense. Um, Jeffrey, frankly, you yeah, had a sure. Terrible, I mean, basically, terrible... my public defender did not. He didn't defend me. He didn't call my didn't interview or call my alibi as a witness. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He didn't use that to chant to argue that that proved the confession was coerced and false. They literally didn't cross-examine this medical examiner who's was giving false uh, testimony to help the prosecution counter the DNA test. Uh, he rarely met with me. Uh, every time I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room, he was always uh, shutting me up. You know, one time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Uh, he sh really shouldn't have represented me at all because of a conflict of interest. So the prosecution was falsely claiming that another youth had slept with uh, Angela and then that was their answer for how the DNA didn't match me, but I was still guilty. But they never tried to prove that. They never called him as a witness and never had a DNA test. And you know, my lawyer allowed him to get away with that. And we were, the defense was not allowed to call him as a witness because he was being represented by another member of the same public defender office. So that conflict um, caused us to not be able to, um, to to take that step. And lastly, in terms of the confession, uh, he was all over the place with the jury. I mean, sometimes he told the jury it did, the confession never happened at all. Other times he was arguing that it did happen, but it was coerced. And at still other times he was arguing that it was false. So I mean, obviously, you can't just throw things against the wall. You have to pick a lane and go down it. Otherwise, you're going to be left there with no credibility. Absolutely. Gia, can you explain the, the DNA here? We, we've made several references to it. So um, as part of the 
forensic investigation, there was DNA semen that was found in um, the victim. And that DNA conclusively was not Jeffrey's. So explain to us why that was so significant and how that was manipulated. Sure. Yeah. And Jeff, feel free to correct me, but um, it was Angela was raped. So there was semen inside her body. It didn't match Jeff. And that should have technically, you know, proven that Jeff was innocent. Angela, by all accounts, was a virgin at the time. So it couldn't have been anyone else other than the murderer. Um, But when it didn't match Jeff, they had behind the scenes, I guess, a conversation with the medical examiner and had him testify or report that she must have slept with somebody else prior to the rape and murder. And that explains why it's somebody else's semen inside her. And therefore, it could still have been Jeff somehow. And it was fraud. It was fraud. You know, they made this fraudulent report and 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 went ahead with the wrongful conviction. I'm Gia, Gia, I just want to add, no, Gia got it exactly right. The thing I want to um, mention is, because is that this medical examiner in his initial autopsy, you know, he never mentioned anything about that. But once the DNA didn't match, that's when he said, well, I remember that I forgot to document medical evidence that showed that Angela was uh, promiscuous. Horrible. And I also read that when the prosecutors took your case to the grand jury, the DNA wasn't even in yet. So... Right. Yeah, exactly. So one day before he got the report, he rushed to the grand jury and, you know, he indicted me. You know, he didn't wait to get the report. I mean, I suspect but can't prove that, you know, they probably gave him a phone call and said, hey, this this is coming. You know, and that was why he that was why he didn't wait. I mean, otherwise he would have had to present the DNA to the grand jury. And it's possible that I might not have been indicted. This must have seemed surreal to you, Jeffrey, as it was. It, it Because it snowballed. At some point, I'm sure you must have been thinking, oh, th- you know, this is going to be rectified. The jury's going to figure this out. But instead, at each point, it simply just got worse. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 exactly uh, correct. You know, to give a couple of examples of it getting worse, even in terms of um, uh, during the trial. I mean, the judge came up. I mean, in general, the, the polygraph testimony is not allowed in the courtroom because it's not scientific, it's not reliable, and it's prejudicial. But the judge came up with this backdoor rule. He said that um, he, he allowed the polygraphers to repeatedly tell the jury, I failed the polygraph on the rationale, saying that, well, this confession is alleged to have happened while you were being polygraphed. So he repeatedly told the jury that I failed the polygraph. So that was a significant way how things got worse. But then also, uh, when the jury was deliberating, um, they asked to see Angela's bra. That was uh, one of the clothing items that had been recovered. It was entered into evidence. And, you know, that intersected with one of the statements that they coerced out of me, in which I said that I ripped her bra off. And the jury asked to see the bra. And, you know, it, there's some bras, the way that they're made, you can't rip it off of a body. And so once they asked this to see This one the went bra, over, for those of you, you know, this this bra was the kind that you had to pull over your head. It didn't have any snaps or anything like that. So y'all would be, it'd be very hard to snap it off because of the way it's constructed. Right. That, that's, that was very helpful to add that. So when they asked to see it, that's when the judge said, well, the bra 
and other clothing items were left in the courtroom all over the weekend. And the janitors thought that it was garbage. And so they threw it out. And so it's not available to inspect. And he substituted a photo in which he said, you can almost see the bra. He substituted that photo for the actual bra. How does evidence just disappear from a courtroom during a murder trial? And I'm sorry, if you are a janitor or a maintenance worker at a court, you know damn well what is evidence and what is not. That would not have gone into the trash. There is, I do not believe that for a minute. Gia, this, at this point in the courtroom, uh, I know Jeff has shared these photos. There's a photo of him where he's praying, waiting for the decision, and it is the worst decision. You know, it was that last moment of hope. So at this point, Gia, you know, he has been lied to. He has been tricked. He has been poorly defended and not defended, really, in essence, set up like a sacrificial lamb. You know, what are the chances at this point that he'll ever get out? And I I know ultimately he does, but just to understand what he's facing at this moment in his life. You know, the the scariest thing is that people don't realize that if detectives, prosecutors decide that they want to pin something on you, that it can be anybody. It could be any one of us because you're just powerless when you're up against such a huge machine, uh, which, you know, should be our justice system, but isn't for everybody, obviously. And Jeff can speak to this, but how many people are actually wrongfully convicted? It's anywhere. It could be higher than 10%, which if you look at how many people are incarcerated in our country, I believe that comes up to hundreds of thousands of people, right, Jeff? Is that correct? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's correct. So the odds, the odds of me regaining my freedom, having my conviction overturned are, are extremely small. Uh, you know, the appellate courts, you know, they're ver- they're not very good at catching and correcting wrongful convictions. Average length of wrongful imprisonment is 14 years. By the time most people are exonerated, their appeals have long since been overturned. Uh, judges often rubber stamp deny them. Once you've been convicted, the burden of proof is not on the, the government any longer. It's now on the defendant to try to prove that you're innocent. Uh, when the appeals are over, now you have the only way back in the court is if you can find some new evidence. So unless you get an attorney and an investigator to work for free, you know, you're, you're basically stuck. And even if you, uh, you know, and, and even if you do get somebody to work for free, it's hard to come up with evidence to try to prove an, an, a negative. And what's interesting to me is that you had an alibi. You were playing wiffle ball. Why was your alibi never called? I still don't understand that to this day. And, you know, I'll just point out that in in the course of the, the depositions in the lawsuit that filed once I was eventually exonerated, um, that was why Legal Aid of Westchester, which is one of the defendants in the in the lawsuit, um, that was why they settled the, the case, because they there was a note in the Legal Aid file where the trial lawyer had memorialized that I told him that I was playing with football and I told him who I was playing it with. And it was also clear from that folder that nobody ever was sent out to speak to the the alibi. Oh, it's just one horrific wrong on top of another wrong. It's so horrible. So let's, let's get back in real time to where you are now. You've now been convicted. 
you are what age now? You're 17 when you go to prison? I'm 17, yes. And so um, you've shared how horrific that was for you. In your TED Talk, you were describing how you were beaten over the head with some weights because they thought you were a sexual offender. Yeah, right. That was that was the worst of it. Um, but I mean, there were other times other than that where you know where I where I was uh, assaulted because again, there's a vigilante mentality towards people convicted of sex offenses. Uh, the prison in general, uh, Elmira, where I spent most of the time, it was really violent there. I mean, there were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was violence that didn't involve weapons. There was gang activity. So cumulatively, there was a general atmosphere of uh, violence and adrenaline that permeated the air. Um, while some of the guards were professional, a lot of them were not, and they, you know, a lot of them were verbally abusive towards the prisoners. And, you know, so that added to, that added to the environment. I mean, the, the food was terrible. Sometimes it was burned. Other times it was not fully cooked. Um, they housed me, uh, four and a half hours away from where I lived at. And so that made it, uh, very difficult to, uh, to get, uh, visits. So it was very, it was very, uh, it was very isolating. You know, I mean, I did get a few visitors here and there, but for most intents and purposes, I did the time by myself. Um, my grandmother passed away while I was wrongfully imprisoned as well. Um, I took advantage of some of the educational programs. I got the GED. I got the associates a year towards the bachelor's. But then uh, when college education, the funding for college education for prisoners was taken, then that silver lining was taken from me also. I mean, I had to keep fighting off feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, thoughts of giving up, thoughts of suicide. So it was not just the absence of freedom, but it was all these other uh, factors as well. Um, I used to collect articles about people who were exonerated that gave me motivation to continue. But that became somewhat of a double-edged sword because a lot of the people were being exonerated through DNA testing. And once I got past the euphoria of vicariously celebrating someone else's freedom, I mean, then I started thinking about my own case and how the DNA didn't match me. And, you know, why should I be an exception? I mean, it doesn't matter that the testing happened before I was convicted. And for these other people, they got tested after the conviction. And so it was technically something new. I mean, it meant that the results matched that meant the same thing in reality. Jeffrey, on the darkest of days when you were imprisoned, how did you get by? How did you manage? Uh, I think it was a combination of things. Um, definitely belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that, you know, I didn't think about a 15 to life sentence. I just thought I had to just find a way to hold on for a year or two for the next appeal to happen, which I was confident I was going to win because I still believed in the justice system and I knew I was innocent. Uh, I studied the law and that gave a sense of comfort. I mean, I mentioned reading articles about other people who were who were exonerated. Um, there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there named Frank Sterling, and we used to, we kept each other going for 13 and a half years. Once every six weeks, we would get together, and half the conversation would be about trying to continue on morale-wise, and another, another half would be the next move to make. Uh, Frank, by the way, was exonerated a couple of years after me uh, through DNA after 18 years, so I just want to be clear about that. Uh, I had a pen pal who showed up in the nick of time in the last year of my imprisonment. I mean, I was openly asking the stranger, look, do you think I should quit? Should I give up? Should I just commit suicide and be done? I'm never going to get out of here. So I think his appearance was an aspect of it also. And um, 
I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it, it wasn't sports talk radio. This was like a lifeline to the outside. And I would collect nature scenes and, and hang them up on a certain area in the wall where you were allowed to put pictures. And I would just like travel there mentally in my mind. And lastly, I, I engaged in a rather elaborate delusion. You know, I, I, when I would play, um, I'd play basketball, I'd play ping pong, or I'd play chess, and I would pretend like I was a professional player, and so were the other people, and the people on the sideline, that was the crowd. But it wasn't really like kids fooling around on a playground. I mean, this was more that this was like an escape mechanism. My mind created this box so that I could continue to uh, survive mentally. Unbelievable. So, Gia, um, after all of Jeffrey's appeals are exhausted, then he spends the next few years writing to anyone who would listen, attorneys, to try and take his case, because now he's going to need a new attorney. So in finally walks the Innocence Project. How pivotal was this? And also give us the perspective of where we are in time as far as DNA and other uh, forensics. Well, what's really interesting about the Innocence Project is that Jeff had written to them prior and they had declined taking his case because they were taking cases where DNA could exonerate somebody. And in Jeff's case, there was DNA, but he was still convicted. So they didn't think there was anything they could do with his case. And then fast forward to when they finally did take it. And Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, was that 10 years later? From when they, well, they turned me down in 93 and they ultimately accepted to take the case um, after about 15 and a half years. So forensic wise, the, the difference between before and after was that by the time they agreed to accept my case, and by the way, I, I would not have gotten out w w without them, um, the DNA data bank had been created, which didn't exist before. The so, criminal one, CODIS. Correct, yes. Previously, they could only compare like the crime scene items to one individual suspect. So they compared you know, the seminal fluid to me. And the most that could be said is it wasn't me. Now enter the database, they put that into the database and it matched the actual uh, perpetrator. And just to give a timeline for that part of your question, it was 11 years, uh, I, I lost the seven appeals. I wrote letters for four years after that. Then I went to the parole board where it became large part because I maintain my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. I, I got turned down for parole. So then another half year, they took my case. And, you know, just before the 16th year, I was uh, exonerated. There was also a really interesting, you know, hero in Jeff's story, um, the case uh, intake worker at the Innocence Project. Her name's Maggie Taylor. She got Jeff's initial letter that he wrote, um, you know, the second second time around. And uh, they, I think the Innocence Project was still saying that, you know, because there was DNA that already was part of his case, we still can't take it. And she re-presented Jeff's letter to internally to the Innocence Project, I think three different times because she read his letter and she said the words just spoke to her. She knew he was innocent. Just She just knew it. And um, Jeff and Maggie are still friends today and ended up, I think, in graduating law school at the same yeah, time? Yeah, by coincidence, we graduated law school the same year, uh, albeit at different law schools within a week within each other. And so I had a law school graduation party planned. And, you know, when I, you know, I learned from that Maggie was um, going to be graduating like just a week after that, we made it into a joint, uh, a, we had a joint party. 
I love that. Those moments are so healing. You know, this is such a tragic case, but when you hear these special moments of true humanity, um, it there's something so healing about it. And it's so special and magical, you know, and all this sadness. So let's talk about the DNA and how DNA actually did exonerate you. So the DNA that they had found, which never matched you, now um, through the Innocence Project, they were able to retest this yes, DNA and what code, happened. Yes, through, through CODIS, and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years uh, later. Um, and the, so at the time of the crime, the victim was 15. I was 16. The actual perpetrator was was a 29-year-old uh, drug addict with uh, prior drug convictions. Unbelievable. And, you know, they could have saved her life had they gotten the right, the, the second one. 100%. 100%. Right. Gotten the right person the first time. Absolutely. They would have saved that second woman's life without question. And so has he now been correctly convicted of yes. Angela's murder? Because Angela yes. deserves justice as well. 100% she does and she did and she does. And yes, yeah, he so yeah, so he was arrested and convicted for her crime. I mean, at the time he got caught for killing Angela, he already had had 13 years in, in prison. Um, for uh, on the 20 to life sentence he received for killing uh, the second victim. And so he got 20 years for killing uh, Angela added on to that. Please tell me he wasn't in the same prison as you. No, he was never in the same. He was never in the same prison as me. And uh, I'll add on that prior to all this happening. I mean, I never had saw him a day in, in my life. I mean, I was 16. He was 29. He was in a different part of Peekskill and our our paths never uh, crossed. So when you find out, how do you find out, Jeffrey, that my, my lawyer, my lawyer, I had been transferred to Sing Sing and my lawyer came to see me um, unexpectedly. And she she told me that the results um, that the testing had been completed and matched the actual perpetrator and that I was going home the next day. But by then I was so beat down, I, I was not able to hope anymore because it hurt too much every time I, I, you know, had got my hopes up, but lost an appeal. So I didn't, I didn't believe her. And, you know, we, we went back and forth three times with her telling me you're going home tomorrow. Am I telling her, you know, that I was not. And finally, once I did believe her, which only happened because she asked me for my clothing and shoe sizes. And, and she said that there's also a ton of work with the media we have to do that, that made it real. But then I felt better for all of five minutes where a different fear came in my head. I thought something was going to happen um, between the rest of that day and the next day. And the DA was going to change her mind and do what they always did, which was, you know, fight and win. Gio, when I hear that story, I just want to cry. Oh, me too. And I have cried many times while just editing the film, to be honest. And I, I was saying this to Jeff the other night when we hung out. Um, it gives me anxiety every time I hear a story and I get anxiety and, you know, I'm, Obviously, Jeff's the one who went through it, but it's 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 just so sad. So, Gia, walk us through, um, especially you know, the thing is, you you have a different perspective on on Jeffrey's case because you've seen the records, you've seen the archival videos, um, and and photos that would have been taken at the time. So now this man comes out of prison. How is someone supposed to function like this? It's because it's not over. This is not the end of the story. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, Jeff shared with me when we were making the film that, you know, he still has after effects. And, you know, to be honest, I've witnessed them when I'm working with Jeff, things that you wouldn't even think about, things that for the rest of us are just everyday occurrences that you don't think twice about. For example, if we're in a car and there's loud cars honking in New York, there always are. Or if you're talking and all of a sudden, you know, the phone rings and it was you know dead quiet before then. Um, the noises bother Jeff. And I've noticed it when I've just been working with him that he gets visibly, you know, affected by these things and he powers through and, you know, just keeps going. But I, he could speak to this. I can't imagine how many times a day he has to power through something. Too. Yeah, it's often so, you know, definitely there's a psychological after effects of the experience. Um, there was a stigmatic aspect of it. You know, yes, you were in prison wrongfully for 16 years, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? You know, so definitely in terms of interpersonal relationships, that certainly was a significant obstacle. Uh, it was awkward when I would meet up with my extended family because, the disconnect there and knowing who they were from memories yet having had little to no interaction with the overwhelming majority of them. Uh, but then also uh, technologically, um, cell phones, GPS, internet hadn't been created. Uh, cities and towns looking just familiar enough to be weird because they're changed in so many, so many other ways. So feeling like I'm a, almost like in a parallel uh, world where I don't belong. Uh, I was released with nothing and it took five years before I was compensated. So as a result of that, you know, I struggled to have any income coming in. And as a result of that, I had a um, lack of stability of housing. So at one point I was a couple away from a couple of weeks away from being in a homeless shelter. And lastly, it was, it was very lonely, but at the same time, in the middle of all of that pain, all of that difficulty and, and being overwhelmed and the, you know, the external stimulus that Gia explained, which, you know, triggers the after effects. I mean, I simultaneously kind of found myself at the same time becoming an advocate and um, hitting the speaking circuit and doing media interviews and meeting with elected officials and becoming a, a, a weekly columnist uh, for, for a paper, uh, getting a scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree that I began behind the wall, uh, getting the master's degree with a thesis on wrongful conviction, cause and reform, figuring, well, that can help me to be a better advocate, uh, eventually getting compensated, starting the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, um, which we freed 12 people so far and helped pass three laws and being part of a bigger coalition, it could happen to you where we passed another six laws and ultimately becoming an attorney. I mean, just wanting to be further empowered, tired of sitting in, in the front row of courtroom, wanting to sit at the table. So graduating from Pace Law School and recently having a, my first success as a lawyer, helping to free um, Andre Brown after 23 uh, years. Uh, he's been home like two months now. I actually saw Andre um, last night and we were just commenting to each other how surreal it was for him to go guys to visit him with the lead attorney um oscar michelin at, at eastern you know and and just visiting in the visiting room and going over legal strategies and, and stuff like that and now to go from that to you know has having a phone number and hanging out to him on the street um so i mean i just i've reached a point where i i have like an inner peace about me i i know this is my purpose in the world that's how i make sense of everything that i that i that I went through. It's just such an inspirational story. 
It really is. It is about the human condition and how much you can overcome. And here you are after being exonerated. I I think that's the part so many just don't understand. It's not just that, oh, well, it's over now. No, it is not over. That trauma will always be with you. Those years will always be lost, you know. And um, was there anything else like that, Gia, that you found um, as especially for your long form now of the documentary and, and how you were able to tell the anguish and the pain beyond Jeffrey's own words? Well, you know, not something that depicted it quite like that, because another sad part of this reality is that even when I was making film, for example, there's no photos of Jeff from the age of, I don't know, we have 10 and 11, 12, and then we don't have anything until he's mid thirties, you know, except for a handful of photos that were taken in the visiting room inside the prison. Um, so it's very, there's little things that come up like that, that are just so um, in your face. so apparent, you know, that something really, really bad happened because it's just everyday questions you'd have, like, are there any photos from here? And then all of a sudden it's like, no, of course there, there aren't, you know, there's no videos, there's no home videos, there's no nothing, you know, photos with his, you know, he didn't, he didn't know his father, but you know, it's like, are there any photos of him? No. And there's just so many things at every step of the way that are reminders, one of the life that was lost, but secondly, also of how he was a child. So many things Jeff will say, like I was playing wiffle ball and it just reminds you that, yeah, because he was 16, you know, he right. wasn't murdering anybody. He was playing wiffle ball or um, there's just so many little things like that come up. Even I think Jeff doesn't even realize it. I think when he says some of these things, but hearing it, you're like, it's heartbreaking all over again. Yeah. I mean, just to crystallize and piggyback off Gia's answer. I mean, I just want to mention, you know, just for people watching, listening, you know, I mean, I didn't graduate high school. I miss, I miss the high school prom. I miss births, deaths, weddings. You know, I didn't finish my education at a more traditional age. I wasn't well into a career. I I didn't have a, you know, I I didn't get married or have a, have a family, Um, all all those things. And it was particularly hard for me in re, both in the thinking about difficulty of reintegration, but also the life that was lost, it was particularly hard to reintegrate considering that I had never before lived alone. I never, I hadn't had a driver's license. I hadn't went shopping. I had never wrote a check. I had never um, balanced a budget. And so all of those things while, while, you know, being alone to try to reintegrate, I mean, made everything difficult. I mean, I, I remember, I remember one of the tactics I resorted to. I mean, the dean of Mercy College took me shopping once when I didn't know how. And then when my strategy was to just save the empty containers and bring them back with me to the store when it was time to go shopping again without her, because I I wouldn't know what to, I wouldn't know what to purchase. Mm, So telling, so really telling. Uh, Jeffrey, before we talk about your foundation, I want to talk about um, the lawsuits. So as part of, because it it all goes towards justice, whether you're going to find it in the criminal system or in the civil system, but it's all about justice. And through lawsuits, you can affect change (laughs) if you can't do it on the criminal side, which is shocking. So you you went ahead. Who did you sue? And... um, how, how did that end up helping you to to build, yes, uh, to build your foundation? Yeah, so 
So I and and I brought a civil claim in court of claims that, and I, I got compensated there. That was under state law. I brought the 1983 federal civil rights uh, lawsuit. My, my the defendants were the medical examiner committed the fraud. Uh, that was Westchester County. They settled. Um, I sued Westchester County Legal Aid uh, for the deficient representation, and they settled. It was the city of Peekskill for what their police officers did, which also included purposely not documenting 17 witness interviews. They interviewed 17 people who knew Angela in one way or another, and they all told the police that there was no consensual sex, that there um, that that um, she didn't have a boyfriend. And, and by them not documenting that, then that wasn't turned over. So I, that was the claim against them. And then I went to trial and I won against um, the uh, Putnam County for the actions of their polygraphist, um, Daniel Stephen. So they, uh, I went to trial with him and I, I won a jury verdict against him. So now your foundation. What I find interesting you, is that- Yes, I used some of the compensation. I used some of the money. I used a million and a half dollars from that to launch the foundation to try to free other people in the same position I was in the policy work aimed at prevent, you know, prevention. And your foundation, though, focuses more on trying to get uh, private investigators. Is that correct? And you will I, take- I wouldn't phrase it that way. I would okay. say it this way, that we work on both DNA and non-DNA cases. Only like three out of our 17 active cases even have DNA in it. I mean, I feel very strongly of working to free people, whether that can be done under a microscope or just boots on the ground investigative work, because I know what it is to be turned down by the, you know, because there's not DNA to test or so it's perceived. So Gia, when is the full documentary coming out? So we actually just finished post-production last week, so I don't have a date for that yet, but it will be later this year. Okay. And Jeffrey, um, you know, we're wrapping up now. Where can people find you if they need help and they look at you as someone who can inspire? There's definitely the website, www.deskovic.org. Um, the foundation's on Facebook. I am as well. Um, there's uh, the Instagram, Deskovic Foundation, and I'm on and I'm on LinkedIn. I do I do want to caveat that at 17 active cases. We're not, we're not able to take more at this point. We are, are, we are in the process of trying to raise more funds, which would increase our capacity so we could work on trying to, you know, free more people um, that way. So at that point, either when that happens or when we finish some of the cases that are already in progress, then we can open up the queue again and take um, new applications. And Gia, where can people follow you and your podcast and all the projects that you're working on? Yeah, for sure. Um, all of my work is on my website. So it's just geowertz.com um, and, you know, on all the social media platforms as well, obviously. And the podcast is called Speaking of Crime. And uh, it's on all of the all the podcast, you know, platforms as well. Apple Music, Spotify, everywhere else. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, what's funny and I wanted to tell you is that we are covering the Praveen Varghese case this whole season on Speaking of Crime. And you guys interviewed with lovely Praveen's mom. I don't know if you remember, um, yep. but she, she uh, spoke very highly of you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. We um, we are so grateful to you both for sharing this story. And um, Jeffrey, I'm so sorry for everything that happened to you. And what a blessing it is that you found your way out. No, that means that that means a lot. And I feel like, you know, statements of empathy like that and the warmth from other people. I mean, you know, that kind of, it, it, it's healing. It, it encourages me to keep going down this, 
you know, advocacy path that, you know, I've, um, that I've been doing. All right. Well, uh, you can find all our podcasts wherever you all get your podcasts. This is, of course, a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.